Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the second week of our sermon series, Pursuing Racial Justice, How the Gospel Confronts America's Original Sin. As we can all see, racism isn't a thing of the past. In the U.S., we continue to see racist acts of violence police brutality directed at people of color, the rise of white supremacy groups, mass incarceration, and broken systems that disadvantage and harm minorities. And so, as Christians, we want to ask questions like, what does the gospel have to say about this? And what should Christians do in response to racial injustice? Remember that you can see where we're going each week in this series, the outline and the lineup, at the Peace and Social Justice page on our website, GranthamChurch.org. Last Sunday, I began our series by addressing the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and shared how racial justice is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And today we're going to hear from my friend and theological mentor, Greg Boyd, about how the Bible calls us to view this particular struggle, uh, that, that it's more than a human problem, and how we can learn to resist the evil of racism and why we don't get to opt out of this pursuit of racial justice. I'm excited about welcoming Greg Boyd into this series and back to Grantham Church. He was with us in the spring of 2017. If you don't know Greg, he is the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, He is also a theologian and author of many books, such as Letters from a Skeptic, The Myth of a Christian Nation, Cross Vision, and most recently, Inspired Imperfection. If you like podcasts, I'd recommend listening to Greg's, which is curated by Dan Kent, with Renew Ministries. That's R-E-K-N-E-W, Renew Ministries. I invited Greg to contribute to this series, not only because of the topic this morning, but also because of a sermon he preached following the George Floyd murder last summer. Greg's sermon, Please, I Can't Breathe, made the rounds and it inspired thousands of listeners to hear the cries of pain from the African-American community and acknowledge the reality of racial injustice. And that's why I know that what he shares today has the potential to move us to action. So with open hearts and minds, please welcome Greg Boyd. Hello, Grantham Church. I'm Greg Boyd, and it's really, really a deep honor to be invited to address you all here this morning and, and to be part of the series that you're doing on race. Um, I, I want to start by uh, explaining my shirt a little bit. Um, folks send me all sorts of clothing, some you know, just odd things. And uh, uh, this is from Tom and Pam in La Quinta, California. And so it says, faith, hope, and love up here. And then down here it has the perfect storm. Uh, and it's because the combination of race and politics and the pandemic. And back in uh, October, as we were preparing for the election, I gave a message on this coming storm, these, comb- these factors, any one of which would, would be tension raising, but we've got three at the same time coming together and uh, 
Well, what's been going on this week is kind of what everyone's been a little bit worried about. We are in some crazy, crazy times. I think I can get an amen out of you on that one. Uh, these are, it, it, it's really, really unprecedented. And the only thing I'll say about that um, is this, that, you know, I'm just so glad that uh, the one I look to for my presidency, my Lord, uh, he never had to get elected. And his, his lordship can never be contested, and it can't be overturned, it can't be reversed. Uh, hallelujah! He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I encourage you, as there's so much around us that could be just troubling our hearts and causing us such anxiety, uh, keep your eyes fixed. Keep your eyes fixed on, on, on him. Uh, in Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says in one version anyways, that God will give perfect peace to those whose eyes are stayed on him, to those whose eyes are fixed on him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Um, I'm happy, though, to know that uh, as you're going through the same storm we're all going through, we all have our own leading versions of it, but uh, you're under good leadership. And no, David did not tell me to say that. I just know he's a very confident guy. And so you are under good, you got a good captain at the helm. Uh, you're going to be doing all right. Uh, and David and I go back quite a ways. I knew him. He had just come out of the Southern Baptist Church. He was a youth pastor in the Southern Baptist Church. He was still, and, and you know, he, was, he stepped into the same stream that I had stepped into and so many others have stepped into. Uh, this kingdom stream, uh, that's movement that's being, you know, kind of caught on all over the world. Uh, and people are just getting this vision of this beautiful God, raising up a beautiful people to look like Jesus and to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And, 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 and that screws with your theology. And so David, when I first got to know him, he was asking all these questions. Lord, how do you reconcile this and this? And this? How, how, the, how the pieces fit together? And it's just been a joy uh, seeing him just grow to be the leader he is in the kingdom and the job that he's doing uh, there at the church. I, I also want to say that I really, I, I'm really proud of you uh, for just boldly taking on this topic, uh, even naming it as, you know, America's original sin. Um, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, and that's when the whole race issue came to the fore. And I, 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 I was in, in, in dialogue with three pastors who lost their jobs because after that, they felt they had to say, you know, the kingdom is opposed to that <laughs> at, at the minimum. You know, to, they weighed in on the race issue and three of them lost their, their jobs because of it because they were saying, we've got to take a stand on this. We, we need to be involved in this. Um, so it's not every church is like you, and I just, all, all the more reason to take my hat off to you and applaud you. And I'm honored, as I said, to be part of, of the series. Um, I, I want to start with a little autobiographical note, if I, if I could. Um, I was raised by a father who um, was an atheist. Uh, when it came to sexual ethics, he didn't have any. <laughs> uh, anything goes. But when it came to social justice, he was passionate. And so I grew up with his dad who was always, you know, really passionately mad at some of the Southern politicians and the Jim Crow that's going on and all the race, you know, stuff that's going on in the late 60s. Uh, he, was, he was always talking about that. And as I was 12, 13 years old, and it was just he and I living in the house at this point. You know, I, I, I absorbed some of it, um, but most of it I didn't know what was going on. But I knew about racism. And I didn't know that that was a rare thing back in the late 60s. Uh, for, for, for a white person to really be aware of that and, and to, to care about that. My dad actually, when Martin Luther King was, was, was shot, he just bawled his eyes out. I'd never seen him so, uh, so in distress. And he ended up losing his best friend over this because his best friend 
was a guy from Mississippi and, and uh, had never kind of displayed racist uh, cards before, but made a joke out of this to my dad. I, I get, and and uh, my dad was so mad, they, they had a falling out. So I, I knew about racism, but I didn't really know racism. My, my, my environment was completely white. My dad, I, I, he didn't have any black friends. Um, I don't know where he got his passion from, but it, it wasn't, I never saw black folks hanging around our house. Uh, the school I went to, um, I, I can think of two, I went, I went looking for my yearbook and I couldn't find it, so I wanted to be accurate on this, but there's, there's two, there's two African-American kids that I remember in, in, a, in, a, in a class of 660, and I'm not even sure both of them were in my class, and I didn't know them, uh, but it, my environment was lily white, so I was a white guy with, I think, a good anti-racist heart, but who really didn't have a clue. So my wife and I, uh, we get married and uh, move out uh, to Yale. I was going to be attending Yale for my master's degree. And uh, we unpack everything, and, and, and about two days after we unpacked everything, I decided to go off for a jog. And this is my first encounter with, with really the reality of race issues. I'm going to go off for a jog. And um, I, you know, I, I just assume I can jog anywhere I want, because I always have. And so I go out jogging, I've got a Yale shirt on. And as, as I'm you know, just jogging around, and I just, I'm going to scope out the neighborhood. You know, I'm just going to, back in those days, I could run forever. So I'm just going to check out you know, the, the neighborhood. Well, I noticed that, you know, while I'm, while I'm around the Yale environment and, and slightly outside of that, the houses are plush, you know, opulent. There's mansions. It's all really nice. It's all really great. Everything's picked up. Everything's just wonderful. But then I get off the beaten path a little bit, and I don't even pay attention to where I'm going. I just let my eyes, you know, I'll find my way back. That's how I used to do it. And I, I noticed that... Um, get off the beaten path a little bit more, and uh, it's not all nice houses. The houses start to get smaller, and they start to get older, and they start to get more scrappy. And I also noticed at one point that I haven't seen a white person for quite a while. In fact, I noticed as I'm jogging through these neighborhoods that I'm getting some strange looks. And I don't understand that. And, and sometimes I'd wave at the people, and the kids would always wave back. Uh, and sometimes uh, a guy or a gal would, like, maybe a little wave. But other times they, they stared at me. And it made me feel really uncomfortable. And then some folks started like talking to each other across the street. This is August, everyone's on the front porch. And they started talking about me to each other across the street. Some guys are on this, on this corner and they hollered to some guys up ahead. Hey, we got, and I don't remember exactly what they said, but Cracker was, was in there and they're starting to make fun of me. So they're like mocking me as I'm running around with my Yale shirt and my headband. And, uh, and, and at one point, as, there, as there's heckling is starting to crescendo, I'm starting to get nervous. It's starting to get dark outside. Uh, and I, for the first time, maybe in my life, I, I feared for myself. I feared I was going to get hurt. Like, they want to hurt me. And I don't know why. So I pick up the pace considerably. <laughs> I find my, my, find my way back home very fast. Now, see, if, if, if you were to—I was just puzzled. Why? You know, I come from Minnesota Nice. The Twin Cities up here, right? Minnesota Nice. We're famous for that now, aren't we? Aren't we famous? Maybe not. But we call it Minnesota Nice because we're always so nice. Uh, it's like, why aren't you people? Why aren't they nice to me? Why, why, why don't they like me? That was a completely new feeling. I'd never in my life experienced anyone not liking me just because of something I am. I'm white. And I, 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 it puzzled me. Now, if I were to ask the question, why didn't these black people like me? If I were to look at that individualistically, like why doesn't that person like me? And why doesn't that person like me? And why doesn't that person like me? If I were to do that, I might come to a racist conclusion. Because the only reason I can think of why that person doesn't like me is because I'm white, and so for this one, and so for this one. If you think about it individual, individualistically. But we shouldn't think about it individualistically. 
if you want to answer the question, why doesn't, why don't, why doesn't this group like me and what I represent? Well, now you've got to zoom out a little bit and you have to look at the system that people are a part of. Uh, what, you have to know something about the history uh, that people are embedded in. Um, zoom out and take a long picture on it. See, so what I learned, and I don't know the details of this, but there's actually been racial tension from the, found, from the, the time Yale first got started. In fact, Mr. Yale, who started Yale, uh, was involved in the, in the slave trade. Um, and, and so there's a history of racial tension between Yale and the African-American communities surrounding Yale. Uh, and it turns out that whenever Yale wanted more property, and they always did, they kept on expanding, growing, 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 well, they just found a way to work with the state to get it. And the, the black folks then, whose homes now are going to be belong to Yale, are then relocated somewhere. And it just happens to be always kind of in the same place, in the same armpit of the city, away from the highway so no one has to see them, and away from uh, Yale so the Yale, Yale folks don't have to see them. And so there's a lot of animosity going on back and forth between Yale and the surrounding community. Now, I, I, I learned that in the 80s, they poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into fixing this problem. So I, I hope it's fixed. But when I was there, it was, the tension was, was incredible. And it just shows such remarkable I mean, a lack of self-awareness. I just didn't know what it meant to be white. Uh, and and, and I, I've been able to float up here in this little privileged land where I get to go anywhere I want. Don't have to worry about it. And that was the first time I think I bumped into... Well, a different America. Not everyone lives quite like I do. And it creates weird kind of racial tensions. And so here's this clueless guy bucking up against the system. To understand any kind of significant group behavior, you've got to look at the entire system that they're a part of. The social factors, the history. Now that's kind of a challenge for some of us. Um, because America was, of course, founded on rugged individualism. It's one of the foundational myths of America. That's the land of equal opportunity. That this is the land where, you know, it's the land of the free and the brave, and anyone can, can, can rise to any level if they just have a, a gumption about them, if they just you know, want too bad enough and are willing to work for it. This is the land where uh, everyone pulls their own weight and everyone takes responsibility for their own destiny. The land where everyone sleeps in the bed that they made. It's the land where a can-do attitude is your greatest beatitude. And yes, I did make that up today. A can-do attitude is your best beatitude. Glory, glory, glory. It's a meritocracy. So if you're blessed, feel good about it because you deserve it. And if you're not, well, too bad, you must be lazy. Now, of course, we all know that that is largely a myth, right? It's uh, not to deny the, the, the value of individual effort, but it assumes that there's a level playing field. And the truth is that there's not. Though there is for most white folks, uh, at least a, a, a greater majority of white folks. And so, you know, I, there's just all sorts of obstacles that other folks have to bump into that I don't have to bump into. I float up here in a zone of, of uh, privilege. And uh, that's why a lot of people of color don't, don't clap their hands and cheer when they hear this, a can-do attitude is your greatest beatitude, just work out every land of equal opportunity, whatever, because that hasn't been their experience. Now, it's not to say that, that, it's, that individual responsibility isn't important as well. Everyone is an individual. Everyone is responsible for the choices they make. Yes, amen, hallelujah, I believe that totally. But whenever you have a, a, a significantly significant group statistic of a behavioral anomaly, a group does something or there's something that, they don't like you, uh, zoom out and ask, what is the system that is conditioning those choices? Because no one makes a choice like that in a vacuum. No one just wakes up one day and before they loved everybody, they were healthy and happy, whatever, and they just decided to not like white people or they just decided to not like black people or they just decided to not like whoever. You don't just wake up and choose that. 
That, that is really a, a pretty miserable way to live. Uh, no, they're, they're, they're socialized into it, which isn't to take away anyone's responsibility, but it is to give us understanding. You got to look at the entire system. And that brings me to the principalities and powers. Because David, right about now, is asking, did he get the wrong topic again? That's happened with Greg, you know. He finds a way to screw things up. Uh, no, I'm talking about pushing back on the powers, taking on the powers. And to do that, well, uh, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 6. I just had to set it up. So here's what it says. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because our struggle, our, our, our wrestling match, our battle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Hmm. Now these rulers and authorities and dominions, there's a number of these listed in the New Testament, if you understand them in their original first century apocalyptic context, these all refer to these cosmic agents. Uh, they were believed to have volition and intelligence, so they were personal beings, uh, as we are personal beings, but they, their, their scope of authority is far greater than ours. Uh, human beings were put here on the earth, and we were given a dominion of authority. Uh, we're to care for the earth and the animal kingdom. That's our first mandate. I think it's still our first mandate. We're not doing very good at it, but uh, we have that authority. Uh, well, th 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 these agents also were given authority, but th over aspects of creation and over aspects of human society. Uh, and God's hope was that, just as with humans, God hoped that we would use our say-so, our, our dominion, and bring it in line with his say-so and his dominion so that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, God always likes to do things out of relationships, and so he wants to co-rule with us. Well, so also with these powers. Uh, God, God's hope was that they would take their authority and use it in line with his will uh, to bring about God's will throughout the whole entire cosmos. But as happened with humans, so it happened with the powers that some of them rebelled. Uh, this is this understanding in first century apoc apocalyptic literature. And they rebelled, and so they now use their authority um, at cross purposes with God. Uh, and so they, they, they work to corrupt nature. That's why nature doesn't operate the way God uh, always wanted to operate. And, and they use their, their authority to corrupt society and to divide human beings, to polarize us, to pull us apart. Because all of them, the, the whole power regime, and I'll just refer to them as the powers, but all these dominions and authorities and rulers and, and, and elemental spirits of the world and all these things, they're all under Satan's reign. They're all part of Satan's kingdom. Uh, the one who comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. And that's what the powers are all about. Uh, Walter Wink wrote a trilogy, an award-winning trilogy on the powers, on these, these beings in the New Testament. And, and uh, he makes a great case that, among other things, these powers were, it, 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 they, they are associated with people groups and the spirit of people groups. Uh, a mob, for example, such as we saw this week. Uh, a, a mob can begin to take on a life of its own. And it has its own spirit to it. Uh, having been a professor for years, I can tell you that some classes take on a different kind of spirit. There's, there's a, a certain usness, an, an emergent property uh, that kind of unifies us. Uh, there's a, Wing talks about the spirit of, of corporations or the interiority of corporations. Or you can even have a, 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 a sense of unity among nations or a, in a family. There's a, the, the whole is more than the, than the parts that compose it. It's more than the sum of the parts. There's a, a reality to that. And, and some social scientists are arguing for this. And every individual within this social system, within this power, feeds into the power 
but is also then influenced by the power. We influence each other for better or for worse. And there's a unity that binds us together. And so he, 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 he associates the powers with these social systems. Any kind of systemic thing that human beings do together, there'll be the spirit of interiority. Now, for Walter Wink, uh, he was kind of liberal in theology, and he thought that's all the powers were. He didn't think that they really had an individual will or individual volition. And I think he was just plain wrong about that. And my main argument would be that, um, well, as far as I can tell, Jesus believed in the reality of Satan as a personal agent. And, 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 and so with demons and others. And if it was good enough for the Son of God, it's good enough for me. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so um, Paul here says that this is our real enemy. It's the sis systemic evil that's our real enemy. The forces that are always trying to shape us in ways that are not godly. And they're shaping society. And the forces that try to tear us apart and polarize us. Whether it's along ideological lines, ethnic lines, racial lines, cultural lines, they're always trying to divide us. Um, those are our enemies. Our enemies are never flesh and blood. We've got to lock this in. If it's flesh and blood, if it's a human being, then it's not someone that we're to ever regard as our enemy. Rather, it's someone that we're supposed to be fighting for. And the most fundamental way that we fight for them, whether they're friend or foe, they may see us as the enemy, but we don't see them as an enemy. And Jesus tells us to love our enemies and do good to those who bless us and persecute us. So it doesn't matter what they're doing. Uh, our job is bringing about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Our, our job is to refuse to not love them. And that's how we fight the powers. Ultimately, we're either, being, we're either resisting the powers by refusing not to love the person in front of us, the neighbor. We're either resisting the powers by refusing not to love or we're being played by the powers. And, and we'll, you can know you're being played by the powers is when you identify flesh and blood as your enemy. See, the enemy wants you to identify flesh and blood as an enemy because if you're shooting at them, you're not shooting at the powers. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting deceived. We're getting played. We're getting punked. All right. So, lock that in. The powers are oppressing this world. Now I want to apply this to the human race. And we'll see how, what it has to do with racism. Uh, I want to read another passage from the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul here is talking about the uh, division between Jews and Gentiles because from a first century Jewish perspective, that is the most fundamental division of, uh, in the human race. There's Jews and non-Jews. It all breaks down to that. Uh, but this divide is sort of paradigmatic, which means whatever we can say about this divide that separates humans, uh, we can say about every divide that, separ that separates humans. But here's what Paul says. He says, For Christ is our peace. In his flesh, Christ has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. And he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. One new humanity uniting these groups, thus making peace. The concept of God's peace is shalom, reconciliation. And might reconcile both groups to, to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. Man, that is one dense passage. It's got so much truth packed into it. But see, it, it, it's just so beautiful. Jesus died, listen to this, to create one new humanity, to have a new start for humanity. That's why Paul calls him the new Adam. Jesus died to be the peace, the shalom, that brings together disparate groups and reconciles them to one, in, to, to God and then and to, to each other. 
Jesus died so that every kind of division, every sort of hostility that separates one group from another would be destroyed, torn, torn down, obliterated, so that human race could finally come together. And we see the vision of this coming together in, in the book of Revelation when it says that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will come together around the, the throne of God and be worshiping the, the God and, and, and the Lamb. Uh, it says in Revelation 21 that the kings will be bringing the glory of their nations uh, into the, the, the uh, New, New, New Jerusalem. Um, and, and see, it, it, it's, that is what we are to be now. We're to be putting that on display now. Uh, this is what God desired with the human race and all of its diversity refracting the glory of God. Uh, it's, it's just magnificently harmonious. And there are the things that now divide us, the differences of the nations that divide us in the kingdom when the kingdoms fully come will be part of what unites us. As you, you bring your distinct thing, your distinct self, your distinct nationality, your distinct music, your distinct dress and food or whatever, and you use it to celebrate uh, and glorify the Lamb. Praise God. Uh, it will happen. So what that means is that on the cross, all the things that divide us have been rendered null and void. Um, all, the, all the labels that we have, the, 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 way, the ways that we automatically file people, rank people, assess people, evaluate people, uh, categorize people. You're this, not of that. We say we, we distinguish between what, what gender are you. And it has a certain meaning to it depending on the culture. Uh, I, what, what is your race? What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? What, what's your culture? Uh, you know, what's your skin color? Are, are you young or are you old? Are you rich or are you poor? Or are you pretty or are you not pretty? All these little labels that we have. And then we look at the world through all those labels. And it blocks us from being united. Well, when Jesus dies on the cross, he gives us a new identity. He creates a one new humanity. He, he's, he is the new Adam, praise God. And when we surrender our life to Christ, we're born from above, praise God. We have, have uh, Abba Father's DNA running through us, which gives us this ability to love. If we yield to this, this ability to love without condition, to love without restraint, this ability to manifest this one new humanity that Jesus died to bring about. The job of the church is to be the first fruits and to put that on display. In fact, whatever will be true when the kingdom comes in fullness, we're to be striving to manifest that now as much as possible. So if someday they're going to be, there'll be shalom that, that unites all the people groups, if that will be true later on, then our job is to, as much as possible, make that true right now, to be the first fruits of that, to be the advertisement of, 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 of what's coming, to be the, a roadmap that shows people the direction that God is heading in this world, and would you like to join us in bringing about that reality? So here's the thing, you're talking about the, it's, uh, America's original sin. Um, it's also the church's original sin. And this is why this is so important, that we, we take on the task of resisting the powers. There is a beast of racism that we invited into the foundation of this land, and we've been feeding that beast ever since. Uh, it is the church's original sin, because think of this. Had the church cared at all, about manifesting that one new humanity. Had that been on their radar screen, do you think anyone could have engaged in slavery or in the genocide of the indigenous peoples? I don't think so. And we have to be honest that it, these were most, the vast majority of these folks were God-fearing Christians. They were, they were being taught each week by some pastor. They were identifying the whole land as Christian. And if they had any concern about manifesting this, this could have never got. We're in this mess because of the failure of the church. All the racial tension we have going on now, 400 years of feeding this beast. And, and, and we're not responsible for what was done by our forefathers in the past. I don't think we're guilty of that. You don't inherit guilt by racism. 
But having said that, I do think it's our job to be at the, this, to cleaning up this mess, to be at the forefront, especially because manifesting this one new humanity is something that Jesus died for. Now think about this. If Jesus died for this, this makes it an atonement issue. Jesus spilled blood for this one. If Jesus spilled blood for it, I take that to mean it's not negotiable. Manifesting this one new humanity, at least moving in that direction, is no more negotiable than deciding whether or not you want to preach on the forgiveness of sins, which is also part of the atonement, right? If you would never, if you'd consider a heresy not to preach on the forgiveness of sins, we should with equal force consider it a heresy not to address race issues, not to preach on the heresy of racism, because that's ultimately what it is when it's carried out by the church. This is why this needs to be on the for forefront of, of, of the issue. Some folks might, say, might be thinking, well, can't we just be colorblind? You know, those days are past, let's be colorblind. I don't see color. See, if you're not seeing color, you're not seeing people because people always come in some shade of color. Uh, no, Paul says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile. But we still are male or female, Jew or Gentile. It's just that the meaning that the world puts on it, the way it ranks things, that we don't have to have any of that because our identity, our total identity is to be found in Christ. If my identity is found in Christ, then I'm not going to be trying to find my identity in my life and my well-being and the fact that I'm male, the fact that I'm white, the fact that I'm American, the fact that I'm Minnesotan or whatever. I may like those things, but no, my identity is anchored in Christ. And, I, and that's what we acknowledge for everybody. But we still are male or female. We still are black or white. We, we are that. And Part of, a central part of our discipleship has got to be learning to wake up to that uh, and, and to work through all the issues that come with that. It's, we don't get a free pass on this. It's tough stuff. Uh, but it's so worth it because there's no other way to manifest the one new humanity. Uh, I'm proud that you guys are taking on this issue. I, I, uh, it's, it's the right thing to do, but it is not easy. Uh, it's uh, all the more reason why in the kingdom we're supposed to do this. Let me end with just giving you three little quick tips on, 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 on going forward. Uh, just something to think about. Number one, I encourage you to cultivate cross-ethnic relationships. Cultivate cross-ethnic relationships. Um, that is just so vital. And here I'm speaking mainly to white folks because on the whole, uh, people of color, they, they have to deal with white folks. But white folks, at least at the present time, don't have to d deal with people of color. You can orchestrate your world so you just kind of avoid. And our natural tendency is to stay in our little quarantine homogenous groups. But see, if, you're, if you are just surrounded by homogeneity, sameness, then you look at the world through sameness and, and you're not going to... You'll not understand how someone could see something so different than you, how, how someone could be, have a different interpretation of things. You won't see the racism. You know, systems, I don't even notice the system until it stops working. The traffic system, I don't notice it if it's working for me. That's what systems are supposed to be, do, to be unnoticeable. You only notice it when it's broken. When on the way to film this thing, the, the route that I usually take got closed down, now I got to do this detour. What's wrong with this system? <laughs> well, see, for, for whites, America was founded by whites for whites. And so the system has tended to work pretty good for us. In the kingdom, following the example of the one who didn't grab hold of his privilege, but set it aside to enter into solidarity with us, Philippians 2, that's what Jesus did. Well, that's what we're called to do. Uh, and and uh, yeah, to enter in solidarity with, with, with people of color, uh, to have friendships that go, are deep enough so that there's trust there. Uh, 
It's the only way to expand your experience. One of the things I noticed about Jesus is that he went everywhere. He, he, he mixed it up with all different kinds of people. Uh, intentionally cultivate uh, cross-ethnic relationships. Uh, diversify your— In the kingdom, diversity is, is, a, is a good in and of itself because look where we're headed. Every tribe and tongue, every diversity is around the throne in the end. Number two, just I encourage you to educate yourself. If you haven't, excuse me, if you haven't already, <clears throat> um, read up on this and, and, and make sure that when you read up on it, you're reading good history. Uh, they wanna, it's not a history that it was, has some ideology behind it. Um, Howard Zinn's uh, History of, of the People, uh, the People's History, I guess it's called, is, is a great pl- place to start. But educate yourself um, on the history of how we've been feeding this beast. So until you understand this beast, you won't understand the complexity of the, of the dynamics that are going on in this land right now. And, and the third thing I just say in closing is uh, support the cause. Support the cause. Um, however that looks. Now, here's, here's the thing. Supporting the cause might get messy. I, I struggled with it so much. I, I used to, should I go to Black Lives Matter uh, rallies or not, and protests or not? Uh, I want to be in solidarity. I feel like we need to be in solidarity with, with, I'm speaking as a white person here. I need to be in solidarity with people of color. And so when I see some unarmed black man being shot unjustly, um, I want to lend my ouch to their ouch. And I think that's part of what the church is called to do. It's incarnational. But there'll be people around who maybe, you know, I'm there out of love, and I, I know that as long as, you know, that the, the oppressors are, uh, are, are, are as victimized by this as, as the, the oppressed are, and we'd be loving our enemies, but I know that a lot of the people at the, pro, at the protests won't be. And I used to stay away from things like that because, you know, I, I don't want to condone violence. I don't want to condone people being angry or whatever. But I finally realized that, you know, Jesus, he wasn't afraid of how things looked. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors for crying out loud. And the religious prissies, they look down and they're all, oh, look at him, he's thinking I was a prostitute. Oh, he's, he's not being holy. Uh, but see, Jesus revealed his, whole, his true holiness isn't about staying away from sinners. It's about loving sinners. And, and, and so, 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 yeah, you, you might have to, and everyone has to kind of follow their heart on this. But uh, it might get messy, but whatever else happens, not participating, not caring, opting out is simply not an option. Jesus died for this. The only way we can manifest that one new humanity that he died for is to push back on the powers, to live differently, to walk in a different way. So, Father, I thank you for Grantham Church and just the way you're growing them and the course they're going on. And I pray you continue to give them courage and wisdom as they go forward to manifest the one new humanity that you died to create. In Jesus' name, God bless you guys. So enjoyed it. (sighs) Take it over, David. Bye-bye. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate that guy. Uh, I hope that uh, you've been blessed. I'm sure you've been challenged by this message and want to reflect on what you've heard. But before we reflect on this message through song, I want to let you know that we want to support the cause in our community here at Grantham Church. Therefore, this month we will have a Peace Sunday in-gathering offering on Sunday, January 31st, the last Sunday in our series and the last Sunday of the month. This year, our in-gathering offering goal is $3,000, and your gifts will be divided equally among three local uh, ministries, each of which addresses racial injustice in in different ways. We believe that we can support the cause of the oppressed in our area by sharing our financial resources with organizations who are making a real difference. And so over the next three weeks, we'll be spotlighting each of the three projects And the first of those initiatives is the Young Professionals of Color of Greater Harrisburg. 
Young Professionals of Color creates community for the black and brown professional collective in the greater Harrisburg area and empowers professionals of color to identify what they need to thrive within the community. And one of their activities is to adopt classrooms by giving grants to teachers in Harrisburg for special projects. In their first three years, they were able to adopt 27 classrooms. Now that's a cause worth supporting. So friends, stay tuned each week to hear about the other two projects. And now, let's reflect and apply what we've heard today from Greg. Be blessed, church.